you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, howdy again, folks, and welcome back to Prairie Justice, our second episode. And thanks for those who downloaded our very first episode about Action Comics 42. Today we're going to carry on with that, Action 43, and I don't have a ton of preamble today. We're going to try to keep this a little bit shorter. Sorry for going so long on that last one, but I had quite a bit to say. Uh, the one thing I do want to say about Action Comics 42, I made a little bit of a faux pas that I didn't catch until I listened through the episode after I'd posted it. I did talk in the crit- criticisms about that we didn't know what city we were in. We didn't know where Vigilante was making his home, and we didn't know where this adventure was taking place, and it was just kind of a stand-in for New York. While I still stand by that, as I read through, I <laughs> I realized I had actually read what city we were being in at the point where Killer Kelly has uh, has escaped and is robbing a bank. The narrator, myself, uh, reads from the the captions in the 1941 story that we are in a place called Preston City. So we now have a name for where Vigilante's adventures are taking place. And I honestly don't remember from my read-through whether the Preston City is going to be an ongoing thing or not. I suspect not. But uh, you know what? I guess I better not uh, speak out of turn again until I have had a a proper go through. So we'll be on the lookout for Preston City where the where that uh, erupts or not. And of course, don't go running to your atlas looking for it. I doubt you're going to probably find Preston City in New York City or New York State or in Wyoming or in California or anywhere else. It's just your usual comic book stand-in as Metropolis is for Superman and Gotham City is for Batman, Keystone City for The Flash and so on and so on and so forth. I don't exactly know why comic book creators didn't want to nail down a city. You know, there's there's pros and cons. You, you know, it, certainly in Stan Lee's New York, there was a full understanding that we were in the actual physical New York of Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Avengers, and all the rest. And... You know, the nice part about that is I guess it gives the gives the fans a bit of a geographical ownership of the story. Uh, I guess with, uh, with fictional cities, and as you talk about Starman of the 1990s, uh, James Robinson took great faith in the idea of the fictional city of Opal. And he has all sorts of reasons for that. As you can read the editori- uh, Robinson's editorials in the preambles to his uh, the trade collections of the, that Starman series on why he loved the idea of the fictional cities. And I guess you can build up its own history, its own characters. You don't have to, you know, have Mayor John Linseed as they did in the Batman TV show. You know, you don't have to build up fake mares or anything like that. You can have these characters, the police commissioners and the city officials, that sort of a thing, and its own institutions as well. 
And so there's pluses and minuses, but don't get attached to Preston City. I don't think it's going to show up too often. It's just, you know, like I say, a stand-in for New York. Now, having given in that little bit of rec recusation, is that a word? Hey, we're still in the Trump era. I guess it is. I did get a little bit of feedback for Prairie Justice Episode 1. And it shouldn't have surprised me that it came from the incomparable Dave McIlvaney. And that name might uh, be familiar to a few people. He comments often on podcasts and, uh, and good that he does. And uh, I was very happy that to get my first missive from Mr. McIlvaney, a, uh, a denizen of the, uh, I believe we call it the Quaker State, Pennsylvania, or is well, let's stop stumbling and just read Dave's uh, letter. Greetings, Ranger Gord. Thank you for this podcast. While I'm not as big a fan as you are of Vigilante, I do remember first encountering him and the Seven Soldiers of Victory in Justice League of America, number 100 to 103, and being intrigued by him and his companions, some of whom I'd read about before. And just to pause that... Yes, Dave, that's exactly where I first saw the vigilante as well. I suspect I'm a little younger, was a little younger than you, but uh, that's okay. We won't go into that. Uh, back to Dave. I read some of his appearances up through Crisis on Infinite Earths, but my comment reading dropped off significantly in the post-crisis period, so I didn't know if he was still around anymore. I certainly enjoyed the idea of a singing cowboy masked vigilante, called the Vigilante, and the Greg Sanders identity certainly brought to mind Roy Rogers, a favorite of my youth, and Gene Autry, a favorite of my father. I must say I laughed a bit when you were explaining the kind of country singer Greg Saunders the Prairie Troubadour was, as contrasted to contemporary country stars. I'm old enough to regard many of today's country singers as more pop singers. My thinking, and this is my only personal opinion, is that if I can't imagine Patsy Cline singing, it's not country music. And uh, just to interject, yes, Dave, I'm not too far away from your, your thinking on that of modern country music. I wish they'd call it something else. I don't consider it country music. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Which was funny in 1980, but uh, today, those genres have actually separated. The Western part, they actually refer to as Americana. And you can find the odd online radio station that does adhere to a more classical, as opposed to what Nashville is producing today. In that subgenre, you will find people like Michael Martin Murphy, uh, Ian Tyson, Corblund, and other people who do sort of adhere. Riders of the Pl of the Sky is another one, and they do sort of adhere to a more more traditional sort of a cowboy sound, for lack of a better word, western sound. So to get back to Dave's letter, I love a lot of Golden Age comic stories, but as you pointed out, there are some elements that are problematic, even racist which were commonplace in that time, but which would certainly not show up in current stories. 
And to interject again, that's good, Dave, because if they do show up in current stories, that's probably a sign of a comic you should not be supporting. It's good that we know this stuff was there, but it's a good that we don't use it nowadays, at least not in the mainstream. Thank you, Dave, for that. I look forward to future episodes. And I wonder, whatever happened to that Superman fellow who shared time in comic, in action comics with Vigilante? Yes, uh, action was a, as I pointed out, is a anthology. So there was Vigilante, Zatara, Congo Bill, Mr. America, and of course that Superman guy. So I think that he has probably gone on to do some great things. But yeah, he's no Zatara. So live long and prosper, Dave McElvaney. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate that. So on that triumphant note, let's go up, up, and away with the Vigilantes portion of Action Comics number 43. That's if we can get past the Superman's feature. But first, a word from one of our broadcasting friends. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha ha podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? So once again, we're headed into Action Comics number 43, published by DC Comics. On the stands, October 17th, 1941, and December 1941. So giving you those dates should tell you that we are not far away from the attack on Pearl Harbor and the resultant of America's involvement in the Second World War. And they're certainly not burying the lead by this cover as Superman is headed into taking on a German paratrooper who is not having a very good results. And so they are definitely on a war footing and comics knew, know all about it, even if other people do not. Uh, our editor on this issue, uh, 10 cents for 64 pages is Mr. Whitney Ellsworth, Frederick Whitney Ellsworth to be exact. Well, most people call him Whit or Whitney. And our writer is once again Mort Weisinger, and our artist is once again Mort Meskin. And by the way, that's the only credits we really have for this, and I think that is based on a lot of research too. Comics didn't take a lot of time to give a lot of creator credit, and of course that's led to a lot of consternation over the years uh, based on residuals and money and finance and that sort of a thing. I don't know if anybody ever went to court to argue about Vigilante, but our title character, Superman, has certainly seen his share of litigation over these issues. 
So we do not know who the inker is or the colorist. So it's just there. We assume that probably Mr. Meskin is doing his own inking and possibly his own lettering as well. By the way, our vigilante feature is indeed 13 pages, as was promised by the blurb in Action 42. So that surprised me a little bit. Reason being is that uh, the, the lead feature, Superman, is also getting 13 pages. While the other characters in this issue are not getting quite that page count as well. Uh, Congo Bill, Mr. America, Zatera, they get about 8 and the three aces only a few pages. So Vigilante in just one issue has definitely moved into the second banana spot here. So it's too bad we don't have letters columns from those ages or anything relating as to how Vigilante's uh, went over with critics or with fans or such. I don't think Vig will hold this 13 page spot very long. We'll see how that goes. The story itself is called Billy Gunn's Mine. It is not used, that title is not used on the splash page, uh, just like the last one, but has uh, basically gone down, at least into Mike's Amazing Worlds, with that title of Billy Gunn's Mine. And this is, of course, is our first appearance of the irascible Billy Gunn. And he'll be around the Vigilante feature for a little while as a regular supporting character. Uh, when stuff comes along here within the next uh, few months, Billy Gunn will fade to the back. But he'll never be totally gone. He'll pop up now and again. He's the Sheriff of Times Square. And that is used in this issue. So we have definitely moved away from the Preston City pretense. And we are pretty much ensconced in New York City, as there are also mentions of Broadway, as well as Times Square. So, on with the story, Billy Gunn's Mine. The Vigilante in Billy Gunn's Mine. The Shade, a sinister spectral figure as black as his name. Leader of a legion of the lawless, this shadowy wraith dwells in ebony darkness and vanishes in the light. But then appears the vigilante mystery writer from out of the purple sage who stalks the phantom foe with twirling lariat and dynamite fists as he pits wits and weapons of the west against an incredible shadow who laughs at bullets. The Grayson Aluminum Company where crews of men toil 24 hours a day to ready the precious metal needed for the nation's defense against the dictatorships. Inside the aluminum factory, a lone figure lights a flame that is to burn a new chapter in criminal cunning. By the time the candle burns down and reaches the gunpowder, I'll be a few miles away from here. The shade ought to give me a bonus for this. The flame falls lower and lower, ever nearer the pile of explosive power, until presently... And at the nearest firehouse. Accordingly with the Shade's prior planning, 
An ugly mob of goons has overpowered and trussed up the entire fire brigade and awaited the inevitable emergency call. Big fire at the Grayson Company. Fine. We'll answer the cab as soon as we tie up these mugs. Arrows run up the play fireman. The band of thugs rolls out the mighty fire engine into the avenue. This is going to be a hold-up deluxe. The bogus firemen hastily load the engine with precious metals. This is hard stuff. What a brain the shade has. Don't be upset up like this. Stop chewing the rag. We got to load up. Quick. The gargantuan vehicle rockets through the streets unsuspected. Must be a big fire. If that copper only knew the truth. And draws up before a deserted warehouse. And a door slides open. Right on schedule, slots. The shade is waiting. The loot stored away. The criminals enter a dark room upstairs and wait for... The Shade. I'll bet the Shade gives me a bonus. And the Shade is a smart boss, but he always gives me the creeps. Suddenly, the Shade appears. A phantom spectral figure on the wall. Well, Slots, I understand you expect a bonus for tonight's job. Well, Chief... I'm only thinking that I did my work well. The spectral figure suddenly points a figure of doom and... Here's your bonus. That's your reward for not bringing back all the loot. If you hadn't been sleeping, you would have found a bigger supply of metal inside the factory. And now, on to business. Our next job is to knock off Billy Gunn at the... His instructions completed, the shade vanishes. He's gone. I wonder, how does he do it? He's a mysterious guy, all right. I wonder who he is. The next day, and Greg Saunders, the popular prairie troubadour, attends an amateur broadcast show with pretty Betty Stewart, blues singer. Way down upon the Swanee River, far, far away, far away, there's where my heart is turning ever, there's where the old folks stay. All up and down the old creation sadly I roam, still longing for the old plantation and for the old folks at home. They're pretty good, aren't they, Greg? Yes. Let's give them a hand. The next contestant will impersonate the famous Prairie Troubadour. Introducing... Oh, Billy Gunn! Yes, sir, folks, that's me! We're seldom as heard, discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. Home, home on the 
Boom. Give him the hook. He's a ham. Give him the gun. I feel sorry for the old chap, Betty. He wasn't really that bad. Why don't you talk to him, Greg? After all, he's a fan of yours. The Prairie Troubadour seeks out Billy Gunn. Hi there, old-timer. Don't let them get you down. Out west, they'd know you were okay. Why, you're the Prairie Troubadour. Jumpin' Gila Monsters, I'm mighty pleased to meet you. Greg Saunders notes the torn, tattered clothes that the veteran westerner is wearing. Look, Billy, there are a lot of autograph fans outside. Won't you change clothes with me so that I can escape? Then you can keep my outfit. You mean you'll give me your brand new outfit? Yippee! The two retire to a private office to swap clothes. Thanks, partner. And if you ever need a favor from an old desert rat who can make a gun talk, call on Billy Gunn. My ruse worked. The old gent is tickled with his new outfit. As Greg Saunders leaves the studio in the ragged clothes of Billy Gunn, It'll be fun when the fans mob old Billy, thinking he's me. But someone else mistakes Greg Saunders for old Billy Gunn. This'll teach you to stay west, old man. You missed me. Try and perforate my partner, will you? Eat lead, you dirty coyote. Help! Out west, you'd be stretching hemp, you bushwhacking sidewinder. Back to your water hole, you thieving varmint. And inside the studio, the fans applaud, thinking that it was really the prairie troubadour who overcame the thug. Isn't Greg Sanders wonderful? Mastering that thug that way? What a phony Greg is. He's taking credit for Billy's bravery. Later, the two men question the frustrated assailant. Talk fast, you owl hooting pack rat, or I'll string you up to this lamppost. Why are you on the prod for my pal? I didn't mean to shut up. I thought he was you. What a man, this Billy Gunn. Must have spent his life on the range. But why did you want to plug me? I have no enemies. I can't talk to Shade or kill me if I do. Well, if you won't palaver, then off to the hoose guy you go. I don't care. If I stay around, the Shade will shoot me on sight for having failed. This looks like a case for the vigilante. So long, partner. Thanks for the help. Visit me soon, Mr. Saunders. I run a shooting gallery on Broadway. They call me the Sheriff of Times Square. At his home, Greg Saunders exchanges his identity of Dude Cowboy for the role of the Vigilante, heroic champion of law and order who battles criminals with western wits and weapons. Old Billy Gunn will need protection, I'm afraid. The Shade will attempt to kill him again. If I know my criminals, but why? The vigilante hurries to Billy Gunn's establishment. That fellow's up to no good. Inside the shooting gallery. Hurry, hurry, folks. Shoot the works. Only 15 cents a gun load. 
Hey, mister, can I use my own gun on a target? Like this. Two attacks in one day? They must think I'm Jesse James. But before the cowardly attacker can fire again, a noose spins through the air. That's giving you rope enough. The vigilante flings the gangster loose. And now for some target practice. Aiming expertly, vigilante fires his shots fractions of an inch away from the thug. Another bullseye for you, vigilante. This is like hunting gophers, pops. I'm not happy. We'll make this chap talk. There are more ways than one to skin a polecat. Watch me. Say it with six guns, partner. That'll smoke the critter out of his hole. The vigilante addresses the crowd. Here you are, folks. A human target. The man who laughs at bullets. Let me at him. This ought to be fun. Help! Get me out of this! I'll do anything! They'll moiter me! I'm the papa. Yeah! Where's the Shades headquarters? We're back to target practice, you go. Uh, <coughs> I'll talk! It's in a warehouse corner. Thames Street in 6th. Upstairs, in old Billy Gunn's sparsely furnished room, the vigilante explains his plans. It won't be long before I come to grips with the mysterious shade pup, and then I'll find out why he wants to kill you. Before you do, vigilante, there's something I'd like to confess. I'm a fake vigilante. I've never been further west than Passa Sea Street. I learned lingo from reading cowboy magazines and seeing western movies. The only shooting I ever do is in my own shooting gallery. I'm telling you this because you saved my life. The vigilante prepares to leave. But one man, the prairie troubadour, thinks I'm the real McCoy. Don't ever tell him the truth, please. Don't worry, pal. Your secret is safe with me. So long now. The vigilante speeds downtown to lock horns with the shade. Who would have thought the old codger had never been west? He even had me fool. At the warehouse. This is the place all right, but how to get in? I'll climb the stairs with my spurs. And now to see what shady tricks the shade is up to. The vigilante hears voices. His next job will be tackling me, but he doesn't know it yet. I'll slip inside. They won't notice me in the dark. The Shade is a magician, coming and disappearing like he does. So that's the Shade. It's the boss. The Shade speaks. Well, Trick, did you rub out Billy Gunn? He thinks I'm a Trick? Nah, boss. I didn't shoot him. The vigilante saved him. Four. Allowing the vigilante to escape. Your throw. Well, I think it's time for me to slip him my calling card. It's the vigilante! Holy cow. Bullets bounce off the shade. I'm a cow puncher from the plains.
This is the way we shine boots out west. The lawman of the west brings his twirling lariat into play. Oh, ringer! Comes the revolution. That guy must think he's winding a clock. Oof! Ugh. Suddenly, a cruel blow from behind fells the vigilante. Have a sick. When he recovers consciousness... You interfered with the Shade's plans, vigilante. For that, you die. By your own rope. When the block of ice melts, you will find yourself hanging in midair. Laugh, you devil. I'll get you yet. And now that we've disposed of our enemy, we strike next at the Jones Tungsten Company. We used fire engines last time. Now we'll use ambulances. Ambulances? Great. The coppers will never suspect. He's disappeared again. Well, let's hurry. Boy, this is a class job. Us riding in fire engines and ambulances. Ambulance laden with gangsters rolls out into the night. Keep cool, vigilante. What a cunning criminal, the shade. As soon as the ice melts there, there'll be nothing to support me. And I'll die by hanging. Ice melts rapidly, and the rope around the vigilante's neck becomes more taut. Got to think a way out. There must be a way. Suddenly, the doomed lawman hears the screech of brakes outside. The last split seconds. Split. That's it. Acting swiftly, the quick-thinking vigilante uses the spur of one foot to split the foot to split the ice. That cake of ice splits in two. Using one piece of ice to support his weight, the lawman knocks, kicks the free piece across the floor. And the chunk of ice skids through the window, crashing outside. Jumping Gila monsters. If that don't look like trouble, I'll mosey around a bit. Presently. Prairie oysters, but it's a good thing I decided to come down here. They can't make hemp bait out of the vigilante. Old Billy Gunn quickly releases his friend. Thanks, partner. Now we're even. Shucks, I only happened to be around here because I heard that thug give you this address of this place. I was looking for action. Well, if you want action, trot along. The shade is striking at the Jones's tungsten plant. Creeping cactus, but we'll show the coyote. And at the Jones Tungsten Company. This is soft. We cover the swag with a sheet, and the bulls will think there's a sick man here. You gotta hand it to the shade. Suddenly, it's roundup time. It's the vigilante. Is Oak okay with you? Good thing you brought a stretcher. This is emergency treatment. Stampede, you white-livered hyena. The big roundup. Okay, Pop, off to the Who's Gow. This is what they mean by a wagon trail. The criminals deposited at the county jail. The vigilante returns to the warehouse to complete unfinished business. Now to solve the mystery of the shade. Inside the warehouse, the vigilante finds a 
hidden microphone through which the shade speaks and a secret panel through which he can fire a gun and a document. This explains a lot of things, but the shade himself is still a mystery. This explains why he wanted to kill you, Billy. You own a deed to a valuable pitch blend mine out west, left to you by a distant relative years ago. The Shade wanted that mine. Well, the mine's yours now, Billy, and you can go out west if you want to. Or do you want to stick around with me until we get the Shade? I'm staying here. There are more bad men in these parts. The next day, Bet Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, takes Betty Stewart for a visit. Why can't Greg be a real hero, like the Vigilante? Extra! Vigilante rounds up, gang! Extra! Wonder what she'd say if she knew who I really am. I wonder what Mr. Sanders would think if he knew I'd never been out west. Next month, the Vigilante solves the mystery of the Shade. We'll review my notes on this. But first, I'm going to go have an edition of Greg Sanders Radio Rodeo. So we're stabilizing the name here at that. In our story, we heard the Swanee River being played at the amateur show. And I'm going to play you a version now that's probably very, very similar to what you might have heard in that uh, version. And this is Louis Armstrong singing along with the Mills Brothers, way down upon the Swanee River, also known as the Old Folks at Home. And I'll have some notes on this after we play the song. Sadly, he 
one thing, my heart am still longing for the old plantation. And for the old folks Now sing, brothers. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Everywhere I roam. Yeah, man. Oh, dark is how my heart grows weary. I'm not even going to try to do a satchmo growl. That, of course, was Louis Armstrong accompanying the Mills Brothers on a song called Swanee River, and also officially known as Old Folks at Home. It's known by both both uh, titles. Now, this is a song that can be problematic, but in looking upon its history, I'm not sure that it is. It starts out as a Stephen Foster song, and Stephen Foster, if you don't know, was a songwriter that uh, did a lot of American popular tunes prior to the Civil War, and you think of uh, the Camp Town Races, many others, I Dream of Jeannie, they all came from the pen of Stephen Foster, and he, of course, was a product of his times. And that shows up in this Swanee River. It became known as a minstrel song. And that meant that it was sang in a lot of live performances of the day. And it has a lot of language that is very, very problematic. And this needs to be given some context. As I said, pre-Civil War, we're definitely talking about the times of slavery. And it's easy to go back to this song and think of it as it has been popularized over the years as almost uh, a romanticization of slavery, not so bad as the lost cause. But there are a lot of words in there that have a lot of problems. Um, Look this up. Google it if you want. Uh, uh, I'm not going to really go into the saying what the words are, but Foster apparently was trying to use the vernacular of the time and in some ways trying to capture the way that um, African-American people, some who were enslaved and hadn't been enslaved, were talked about themselves in their own sort of a dialect of, of sorts. And that comes off in modern times as, you know, not qu- quite the most politically correct. Now, speaking of the politically correct, uh, this romanticization part of it led to its becoming the state song of all places, Florida. And no, I don't intend to go through all of the state songs in this podcast. It just seems to be how it uh, happened last year week we did Home on the Range in Kansas, and now we're doing Florida State Song. Well, Florida has uh, had some rethinking about this song. It's still considered the state song, but with some changed lyrics. And in, in, instead, they tended to have a new anthem. So Florida actually has two songs as its official um, lyricists, lyrics as such. Um, the, they call it the Florida Song, which is the anthem, and they still keep Swanee River or the old folks at home as its state song. So, song versus the anthem. So, you know, a little bit of progress there. 
As I've said, the song became very, very popularized, and when recorded music comes along, it becomes one of the first ones to ever go down on wax. Now, you hear early popular white singers, such as Al Jolson and Bing Crosby, that helped to popularize the song, and Al Jolson is a whole nother, whole nother kettle of fish when you talk about African Americans in minstrel shows and that whole unfortunate thing of blackface. But it has also been embraced by the black community itself. Um, Louis Armstrong and Mills Brothers, as we just heard, and also the Ink Spots. And one, a very famous version was done by Paul Robeson. And uh, if you know anything about Paul Robeson, that's a whole nother podcast that you should probably be looking for. I'm sure you could probably find them. Paul Robeson was a very prominent African-American uh, oral I guess baritone would probably be the proper word. Don't, don't ask me. I'm not a, I'm not a musician. But Robeson would not have sang this song if he considered it a racist song, if you understand what Robeson is like. And he just does an amazing version. It's been used an awful lot in movies and things like that. So, you know, there's some, there's some problems with the song and it's in its usage. But I think, uh, you know, African-American... Uh, community has embraced the song and I believe probably in some ways probably depowered what it's some of its intentions had probably been over the years so that's just a sort of thing uh, that's a, a thing about history it takes place in history and it won't always take place at times that uh, or circumstances that can be understood by its uh, by a modern sensibilities but the fact like i said about the native american portrayals last episode in the vigilante story if it bothers us that's a good thing because it shows that we're progressing and now my notes on this story billy gunn's mine we see a lot of things uh, from the last story that are sort of recycled in this story so more weisinger let's say it he's a writer uh, a good writer never throws anything away, and he never never has a problem going back and seeing what worked. So there's a lot of tropes that you'll probably recognize that will f essentially continue, and I hope we don't get into an episodic rut, but given the medium, we probably will. Uh, Meskin's art in this edition, I think, is a lot weaker. He seems to rely on a lot uh, rougher lines and a lot more exaggeration, but that could be just due to the added page count. All of a sudden, we're going from 8 pages to 13 pages on a monthly schedule. And what probably doesn't help, um, and I, it's hard to tell on the copy that, of the scan that I'm working from, but it just seems that the coloring is a lot darker which is fine for mood, but sometimes the lines just uh, really get muddied. And I think some of the effects that Meskins are probably going for don't quite add up. Um, splash page here. Hey, Vigilante has probably first drawn his six-shooter. And it's not detailed enough that I can give you any amount of detail on what brand or make of a revolver that it is, if you care. Um, we see him roping uh, a few of the gangsters, and we see an outline of this character called the Shade. 
And I think I'll wait until I'm done going through the issue here to talk about the shade. Uh, we open as we do on another dark moony uh, night with full moons. Um, of course, a defense factory. As I said, we're getting close to the war. And we have a aluminum factory, which is going to be very, very in, uh, instrumental for airplane manufacture. And uh, we definitely have a plan, seeing we've got some sabotage that has gone on at this aluminum factory. And in order to rob this place of its raw ore, the Shades men have, have uh, taken over the local firehouse, the closest firehouse to the place, in order that they can use the, uh, the cover of the fire iron, fire iron, fire engine in order to load up um, several ingots of aluminum into the fire engine and I don't quite know how they're going to fence that on the open market uh, or exactly how much aluminum they could possibly carry in an old fire engine but uh, that's because comics uh, we carry on and um, the shade has come out to see how they have done um, and it turns out our saboteur is a man named Slats. Now you might remember a man named Slats from our last issue. So is Slats back? Is this the same guy that worked for Killer Kelly? Well you can wonder that and you can wonder if there's going to be a little bit of continuity but unfortunately we're never going to know because Slats is killed by the shade for being a little bit slack on his job and not bringing up in enough of the aluminum or a bit or enough of the aluminum to supply the shades needs um, the shade himself is not very impressive I think they're trying to give the image of a spectral image and to do that they have colored him in one very I wouldn't even call it a lime green it's a pale green very pukey sort of a color and this character seems to have uh, a mask uh, with some very grim holes on it and using a spectral voice and he seems to overpower the gangsters um, in a sense that he is larger than them comes out of the shadows and then disappears back into the shadows so let's just put a pin in that as far as how the, the shades modus operandi and finally, we're going to see Greg Sanders and his uh, blue singer pal, Betty Stewart. And they are judging a amateur contest. And this is why I played the Swanee River as part of the radio rodeo. We have a portrayal of a black choral group here. There appears to be three or four black men accompanied by a piano player who I think is just the studio piano player because he accompanies the next act as well and the portrayal here of these uh, African-American gentlemen is much much better than what we got with the uh, Native Americans in the last issue they are ex extremely talented they impress Betty Stewart and Greg Saunders who graciously give them some applause and it seems to be probably one of the best African-American portrayals that you can see of characters, I think, in the Golden Age. Of course, as we know, some are 
terribly and god-awful. And they, of course, are singing way down upon the Swanee River, and I used the Mills Brothers uh, version that we just heard in the, uh, in the radio drama. The next stereotype is a very interesting one. It's of an old white cowboy. And he's got a very, very terrible version of Home on the Range. It doesn't sound anything of what Greg Saunders or Gene Autry might do. And he is gonged off the show. And if you remember the gong show from the 70s, uh, this seems to tell us that this uh, way of expressing audience disapproval was also prevalent in the 1940s. So I was uh, interested to see that. I thought that was just kind of a... A 70s thing previous. Greg doesn't want to belittle this character, Billy Gunn. And he seems to take a little pity on him and even exchanges clothes with him. Although i got to wonder about Greg's uh, modus operandi. He changes clothes with him, I believe, so that some autograph hounds will be out, who are outside the radio studio won't be bothering Greg. So he's pushing the paparazzi onto Billy, but maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe he wants to make Billy feel a little better and get some attention after being so ceremoniously booed off the stage in the radio show. But when Billy does get outside, he doesn't meet paparazzi. He meets a gunman. And it's not Billy, actually. It's uh, Greg who is, of course, is in Billy's old patches and jeans. And and uh, that, of course, attracts attention. And Billy comes along, and Billy seems to be armed himself. So whatever uh, pistol-packing gun laws were around in the 1940s, well, I guess Billy Gunn is doing a, do, got his own open carry permit. We don't really know why Billy is uh, being attacked. And there's one goon that uh, drops the name of the shade and won't say much of anything else. And Greg, of course, thinks this is a job for the vigilante. Back in his flat, Greg changes into the garb of the vigilante and he meets Billy Gunn at his place of business. Billy Gunn runs what we would probably call today a gun range, but I believe this is... uh, something a little bit more innocuous it's a shooting gallery and it seems to be a something right in Times Square can you imagine an actual gun range inside of Times Square I don't think you'd see that today and it seems to be kind of sort of a throwback to the old west I suspect these are probably just pellet guns and some kind of a tourist attraction that Billy is running Uh, I went to a very similar gallery in and I believe it was Virginia City, Nevada one time, and I would definitely not have identified that as a gun range. It was very touristy, and not at all was what you would think of as a, as a target practice range. It would, it would be seen today. Well, when Greg meets them uh, at the gun range, he is the gangsters are once again after Billy, and, Bill, and Greg uses that lariat and overpowers them, picks up one of these... Uh, who goes BB guns, whatever it is, and giving the gangster a little bit of what for when his uh, buddies show up. And Greg has absolutely no trouble overpowering something in the neighborhood of five gangsters. 
and never really draws his gun other than the uh, the, the pop gun he's using on the on the one gangster that he's trying to get to talk and he does get some information out of these characters purely by th tossing them around the room with his rope and he gets an he gets the address of the shades headquarters billy and greg talk a little bit and then that's actually billy hasn't glommed on that greg saunders is the vigilante so i'm thinking uh either because comics or perhaps billy's eyesight is a little bit worn now both vigilante and greg in both identities really believe that billy is a western character and he certainly looks like one and talks like one but then he admits that he has never been to the west he's an easterner who's read a lot of magazines and gone to a lot of movies and adopted this persona in order to to run his shooting gallery and that i have to admit that was a surprise to me i've been reading you know vigilante here and there over the years and i never had seen the this version of billy gunn's first appearance and uh, i had always understood him as being, probably being some old you know cowboy from the late 1890s or so who had gotten up in age well billy is, is up in that age but he has gotten all his info from pulp magazines and movies very interesting take on the guy and once again, uh, Greg finds the Shades headquarters, and once again, he climbs a telephone pole with his spurs. So I'm just going to give up on this, on trying to critique this thing. These must be some very special adamantium or vibranium spurs that, that Greg Saunders has gotten a hold of. Uh, Vigilante has his very first encounter with the Shade. And it's very interesting that the Shade seems to mistake the Vigilante for one of his own men. This was also something we had with Killer Kelly on the telephone the other on in the last episode. However, I believe there's another reason for it. And I think uh, Vigilante is going to pick up on the clue here. Well, we have more fights with more gangsters. The Shade's got a heck of a gang, but they all seem to have glass jaws. Once again, the shade disappears, but not before one gangster does the infamous whack on the head with a chair over top of Vigilante's head, and we get another one of these great homemade gangster death traps that Vig seems to uh, seems to become a thing in the Vigilante stories. Uh, he's put on top of an ice brick and a noose around his neck, a piece of hemp rope, not rawhide we're going to learn from that one basically what's going to happen is the ice block is going to melt and he's going to be tied to the rafters and as soon as this ice block melts out vigilante's dead as the gang of course leaves him alone I mean, you're going to build a death trap do not stop by and watch it happen because that would be like watching ice melt that's okay because the Shade has another idea. This time he's commandeered an ambulance and they're out for it to a tungsten factory. More war materiel robberies. And I have to say, Vigilante is really sweating in this one. I think he's uh, almost thinking that he has probably met the, the death trap that's going to get him. He's not sure. 
Uh, he can't yell He's because he's bound and gagged with his own bandana. And suddenly he hears a car outside. He figures he can attract attention. And he takes those spurs. And now we know these are hard spurs. Because he chips away with, at the spur, the, his block of ice with these spurs. And this is a heck of a gamble. Because if this block breaks, he's going to hang. And he does break it. And he manages to kick the ice block through the window. It falls to the street. And who is standing there but the uh, Billy Gunn himself, who has followed Vigilante over to the tungsten factory. Billy trundles upstairs, finds his uh, hero being hung, and he says, Prairie Oysters! And he helps Vigilante down. Email me if you don't know what Prairie Oysters are. I don't know you yet. <laughs> it's uh, Let's just call it a Western delicacy. Here we are. Vigilante is at the Tag Tungsten factory. He catches up with these guys in the ambulance, and they're all dressed up in nice white orderly uniforms. Good detail there, Mort. More fisticuffs. And Vig overpowers the boys, puts them on a cart, ties it to the ambulance, and tells Billy to head to the police station. Or the Hooskow, as he says. And then we uncover the mystery of the shade. Well, turns out the shade wasn't even in the room whenever he was talking to his his henchmen. It was all a projection with a microphone and a secret panel from the next room. And that's how he had killed Slats. And there's a document there where he finds out that Billy Gunn is the owner of a pitch blend mine out west well being as how we're getting close to the end you would think well you think billy gunn needs to go out and, and, and cash in on this pitch blend mine but he doesn't seem to want to he wants to stay right here in new york city new york city and we wind up with uh greg saunders out of his vigilante outfit and betty stewart and billy gunn who still hasn't tumbled to the double secret and they're all in thought balloons. And Betty has got her usual Lois Lane. Why can't Greg be a real hero like the vigilante? Greg wondering if uh, she'd think that way if she knew his identity. And totally oblivious. Billy Gunn hopes that Greg never finds out that he's, been, he's never been out west. And essentially that's an interesting setup here. You have Betty thinking that uh, Greg is a dude. And Billy, sort of feeling guilty that he is an Eastern dude pretending to be a cowboy. And of course, we got Greg in the middle who pretends to be the vigilante. Lots of great identity shenanigans. Now I know what you're thinking. The Shade. Is this the Shade that we often see in the 1990s Starman stories by James Robinson? Well, that character, was, as we know, was derived from a Golden Age villain who used to plague the Flash. This is the Jay Garrick Golden Age or Earth 2 Flash, if you will. Is he related to this shade? Well, I probably doubt it. But interestingly enough, since you and I have last talked, I have found out that there was a shade miniseries by James Robinson that was put out there in the New 52 era. Uh, around about 2011 
So I've downloaded that. I haven't read the entire story. And as it turns out, somewhere in the middle, they don't ref reference this story at all, the shade in the flashback sequence does meet the vigilante. I'll be looking through that. And, well, of course, we're going to probably have more appearances by the shade through these 1940s appearances. In fact, he's going to appear in the very next episode, which is also a 13-page story. So that'll be Action Comics 44, and that will be for us episode 3. So at this point in time, we're coming down to the new year at the end of... Uh, the pandemic year we'll wait to see if 2021 gives us more of the same so far i probably have to say it will but at least we can call it by a different name now but at any rate stay safe all the best and happy new year to all of you and yeehaw In the corner of a dark bar room Said a little cowboy singing western tune Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the west back when it was wild well, So long partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast all materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email go to vigilantecast at gmail.com website is www.rangergordsroundup all one word at dot wordpress.com and we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the cowboy crusader vaya con dios compadres eh cause he's the last of a singing cowboy